This is Josh Barrow, and welcome to Left, Right, and Center, your civilized yet provocative antidote to the self-contained opinion bubbles that dominate political debate. It's the second week of June, and this week, mass protests over racial injustice in policing started turning into policy changes around the country. New York passed a suite of 10 laws to reform policing, including one that makes police disciplinary records available to the public. Minneapolis is moving toward efforts to abolish its police department, though it's not entirely clear what that would mean or what institutions would be developed to replace it. Democrats in Congress have their own suite of federal proposals, including banning chokeholds nationally and ending qualified immunity, which protects police officers from lawsuits over all but the most egregious misconduct. Republicans are working on their own slate of police reform proposals. Later on today's show, we're going to talk about what policing is for and what a better vision of law enforcement might mean for America. We will also talk about the controversy over the slogan, defund the police, what it means and whether there's a public appetite for it. Now let's bring in our left, right and center panel. As always, I'm your center. This week, I'm joined by Michael Steele, former chair of the Republican National Committee and host of the Michael Steele podcast on the right. And on the left, Christine Emba, columnist at The Washington Post. Hello. Hey. Hi, Josh. So I want to start with some events in Washington. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, apologized this week for taking part in President Trump's photo op last week at St. John's Episcopal Church across Lafayette Park from the White House. That photo op was made possible by violent actions of federal forces to disperse protesting crowds that had gathered in the park, actions taken before the 7 p.m. curfew that had been ordered in Washington, D.C. Milley said his appearance with the president at the church in fatigues created the appearance of politicizing the military. Last week, Defense Secretary Mark Esper had broken with the president, saying he opposed deploying active-duty troops to impose order in American cities. The Wall Street Journal reported that Trump initially wanted to fire Esper over those comments, though he did not do so. Esper had drawn statements of support from Republicans on Capitol Hill. Michael, the president's actions in response to these protests have freaked a lot of people out, including people who would not normally go public with criticism of the president. We've seen a lot of military figures who have been relatively quiet, not being quiet over the last week plus. Are you seeing a change in Washington about who feels compelled to tiptoe around the president? What do you make of that change? Uh, No, I don't see a change. Uh, And I don't know why people are so freaked out by it. I mean, Donald Trump has exposed um, his game plan from day one. It's the one thing I've, uh, you know, I will say about him is that he will, you know, pretty much tell you what he's going to do and go with that. I think what what we're seeing, certainly in the Millie case, is um, the the recognition that somehow they got caught up in it. Because a lot of these folks inside the administration in various bubbles think that they're not going to get swept up into Trump's crazy. Uh, that their that their position, their rank or whatever, you know, it's like being seven, eight, ten degrees removed from the center of hell. Uh, so you don't have to worry about it. He got caught up in it. Uh, and he got caught up in it in a very public, in a very bad way, at a very bad moment. Um, and what happened was, more than anything else, he heard from his, his colleagues and personnel uh, inside the defense infrastructure uh, who were outraged by the use of the military that way. Uh, a lot of people don't appreciate how much our military does respect the civilian leadership and but in that respect, there's a, a bargain. You know, you don't use us, we won't use you. And Trump crossed that line. So I don't see so much a, a change and um, that people are going to be coming out uh, on a daily basis. What I think is there may be a little bit more gravitas in the moment to speak to it or to try to avoid those moments going forward. 
Christine, I feel like one thing that's changed from the first three years of Trump's presidency is, is those three years were in certain ways a weirdly calm period. I mean, obviously, the president uh, creates a lot of non-calm uh, through his actions. But externally, um, you know, it was a stable period in the economy. It was a pretty stable period in, in foreign affairs. And so I think to Michael's point, while the president has always been the sort of person who would be willing uh, to call active duty troops uh, into uh, into American cities, at least before apparently being talked out of that, though he did aggressively use the National Guard in Washington, D.C. Um, in the first three years of his administration, he wasn't put in a position where he felt compelled to do that. And so I think a lot of people who, to Michael's point, sort of thought they could ride this out, it may be that the first three years sort of gave them the idea that they could ride this out in certain ways. And then events related to the coronavirus and to these to these protests have made that no longer possible, not just for the president, but for a lot of people around him. As Dante would tell you, I think a few circles removed from the center is still hell. Yeah. <laughs> You're still there. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I think we know, and this is what we knew even in during the 2016 election, every president will face a crisis at some point in their presidency. Uh, and it's important to have a president who will respond appropriately. And, you know, we knew from the beginning that Trump, you know, is who he portrays himself to be. Um, and I think that Republicans and, you know, maybe Democrats even who didn't want any trouble were hopeful and wanted to pretend that the crisis would not come and that Trump would not be asked to rise to the occasion or maybe crazily that he would. Uh, we can all remember the repetition of, and this is when he finally became presidential for the past three and a half years. To be clear, he never became presidential. And now the crisis is here. We're all facing it. Donald Trump is facing it and noticing because his only interest is himself that it's causing him to drop in the polls, that his support is going down. And so as we all knew he would do, he is flailing. Unfortunately, Donald Trump, a man without limits and given the vast powers of the presidency, is flailing in ways that affect all of us, um, that affect, yes, even people who thought they were removed from the center or had some protection by virtue of their position in other wings of the government. And I'm honestly pretty nervous about what this will look like for the next five months, because he is going to continue to flail as the crisis continues to stay with us. Coronavirus is not going away. Racism and police brutality and the protests against those are not going away, despite the fact that Trump apparently said that we're going to solve racism very quickly and easily, uh, much like the coronavirus was supposed to go away in 15 days. And Trump is going to continue to take us all down with him. Well, but so that what you referenced there about his polls moving make me wonder if, if there is actually more change here than than either either of you are, are suggesting that you see right now. Because, I mean, the one of the aspects of, of the stability of the first three years of, of Trump's presidency was the remarkable stability of his polls. Now, his polls were never good. Uh, and he 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 and his party lost very badly in the 2018 election because he is an unpopular president, but he's been a stably unpopular president. But we've seen real instability in the polls in, in the last month. They've moved down really sharply. Gallup uh, recorded a 10-point drop in the president's approval rating in one month. Now, Gallup had been unusually high at 49 to start, but now they have him down at 39, one of the lowest levels of his presidency. We've seen a real widening in uh, Joe Biden's lead in the national polls uh, by several points when you compare polls that came out in June to the same pollsters polling a couple of months ago. Uh, and, and so, Michael, when, when we, you know, 
there, especially in 2017, 2018, there were a lot of these articles about, you know, is this the end of the Trump presidency? Is this when Republicans finally break with Trump? And it seems to me that the, the political dynamic that has been there all the way along is that even though Trump has been unpopular, he has very strong support from within his own party, from the Republican voters that Republican officials are accountable to in primaries, and they pay a political price for breaking with him, so they don't. But it seems to me that's conditional, that at some point, the president's poll numbers, if they did deteriorate enough, he would lose that support within the party. And I think you're starting to see some early indications of that uh, in Congress, people standing up to him in ways you wouldn't usually expect. The president said this week that he was unwilling to rename Southern military installations named for Confederate officials. Then the Republican-controlled Senate Armed Services Committee adopted an amendment from Elizabeth Warren requiring the military to, to, to do just that. You've seen House Republicans criticizing the president over his moves to remove troops from Germany. It seems to me that if we have a continued downward spiral for the president, and we'll talk later in the show about the ongoing coronavirus epidemic and what happens if that starts to look worse again for the president, it seems to me that that is the, the thing that could cause Republican elected official support for the president to fall away. And I think we've started to see the start of the, of the polling trend that would be necessary for that. Well, it's June, <laughs> number one. Uh, number two, no one's voted yet. So uh, as much as I think a lot of folks, uh, you know, see these trend lines or see a line uh, in, in the voting um, cycle that you know, indicates a, a problem for the president. Um, I, I still remain uh, somewhat uh, cautious about how we read what we're seeing. Now, to your point, Josh, there are some elements of what you're saying that are getting played out internally within the GOP and specifically within the Trump campaign because there is a new reality that's setting in from that perspective, and that is. Trump had enjoyed 90% plus support, 80, 98% support of, among Republicans. Um, that number is now in the mid-80s. Um, so there has been a drop-off there. He's losing support in two critical groups, independents uh, and the evangelical community, particularly after the walk across Lafayette Park uh, last week. Um, but Trump has this ability uh, to do the wraparound and to to bring those who, who who see themselves as free of his grip a little bit closer to him. We'll see if he's able to do that. There's a reason why he wants to get out and do these rallies uh, again, because that's how he begins to do his wraparound. That's how he begins to call out people in a setting in which a roaring crowd reinforces his his shout out to someone either favorably or not favorably. Christine, what do you make of Joe Biden's improvement in his standing in the polls uh, over the last month or so? I mean, because a bit of analysis that I've seen from a lot of people uh, as we went through the coronavirus and especially through these protests over, over, over policing is that, you know, Joe Biden's message of a return to normal is now inapplicable. Um, and what these events show is what was wrong with the way the U.S. was uh, previously. And you need a robust agenda for taking us forward to somewhere we've never been before, not just going back to normal. Um, and Biden has modulated his messaging, I think, trying to move toward that for a number of reasons. But he's also, he's seen his numbers really improve significantly uh, as things have gotten more chaotic in the country. I mean, when I look at it, what I see is that Biden is able to be what people are looking to him to be. And so if what you want is a return to normal, Biden is the, the candidate of, of calm uh, and of empathy and of, and of, you know, behaving in a more normal manner. And if what you are looking for is positive changes, Biden has, you know, he's made moves in that direction on, on policy. And, you know, at least on, you know, on Twitter, I'm seeing a lot fewer people 
claiming that Joe Biden is senile than I was seeing six weeks ago. <laughs> so it seems to me that, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I don't expect the left to ever love Joe Biden. That's some endorsement. People are no longer calling you senile. Congratulations. <laughs> Well, people are no longer calling you senile and you're up an average of eight points in the polls. Yeah. That's why they're no longer calling you senile. (laughs) (laughs) As I've said all along, Joe Biden was never the left's first choice. He was never my first choice. Um, But he's done really well for himself, frankly, just sitting back and uh, letting Trump tear himself apart. Um, Recently, he's become a bit more of a public figure. You know, he appeared uh, via video at George Floyd's memorial service. He has been making speeches, publishing op-eds. But I think you're right, Josh. Joe Biden is normal in comparison to the crisis uh, and crazy that we're seeing everywhere. He is normal and stability is very attractive to people right now. Uh, Like you said, empathy is very attractive to people right now in contrast with Trump's almost bizarre inability to understand what is going around around him or in the minds of people, except to inflame their fears. Um, And Joe Biden, I think, is becoming a little bit more attractive to the left, because although he is worried about optics, as somebody pressing for normality would be, he does seem at least a little bit malleable uh, and open to considering positions from the left, proposals from uh, people outside of his uh, inner circle. So he has, in fact, spoken out pretty firmly uh, for police reforms. He appears interested in uh, teaming up with Bernie Sanders' uh, previous advisors to continue to make policy going forward. He seems, you know, if not the the leftist, if not the, you know, full-blown progressive that we would have wished for, at least somewhat open to influence. And that's certainly a lot better than Donald Trump is. Finally, before we go to our first break, I want to talk about Mitt Romney. Now, obviously, Mitt Romney has been the most willing member of the Republican caucus in the Senate to break with the president, voted to remove him from office in the impeachment trial. So I don't take Mitt Romney necessarily as a leading indicator of where the Republican Party as a whole is going. But I did think it was remarkable, uh, this scene of him marching in this protest in Washington, D.C., and saying to a reporter that he was there to reinforce the idea that Black Lives Matter which just strikes me as as a huge shift over the last six years uh, in the political valence of that slogan, which started out as as a controversial slogan, started out uh, in in the public opinion polling as underwater in terms of people's views of the Black Lives Matter movement. And there has been a huge shift both in public opinion and I think in the behavior of elected officials in terms of how they respond to that idea and that movement. And I, I was just wondering what both of you made of that moment. Well, I applaud it. I, you know, I think uh, Romney has shown himself to be uh, much more of an independent uh, actor. I think he's got a little bit more cachet uh, to make a move like he did, number one. That's the political. But I think with Romney, what people overlook is the fundamental moral component for him uh, and why in this moment he wanted to speak morally as well. Uh, as a Mormon, as a as a man of faith, uh, and, and to recognize the power of this moment uh, through that lens as well. So I, I applaud him for it, and I'd like to see him do more of it, and I think he will, because um, I think one of the things that he probably tasted was a level of freedom that not many Republicans have tasted uh, since uh, Donald Trump became their titular head. Yeah, uh, Mitt Romney tasting freedom. 
Um, congratulations <laughs> to Mitt Romney for doing what should be the bare minimum. Uh, no, but actually, I, I mean, I am, wait a minute. I am, that's not fair. That's not fair. I mean, the, the bare minimum. I mean, you don't walk in his shoes and you don't understand the, the rationale. So I can't let you get away with that one. That That's that's a sort of a cheap shot. No, I was going to say, actually, I mean, acknowledging that Black Lives Matter should be kind of an obvious and bare minimum for anyone. Um, and I'm very glad that Mitt Romney has gotten there. And in fact, I was going to say that I'm I'm actually proud of him, especially for the reasons um, that you stated, that he seems to be standing up for his faith and his own sort of personal, uh, moral and, you know, conscience demands. Um, and I think that if what he did changes public opinion, changes even a few minds on the right, I think it's absolutely worth it and it's good. I'm shocked, honestly, though, that, you know, so few Republicans seem to realize what Mitt Romney, you know, cottoned onto uh, and is now acting upon, which is that history is judging this moment and will judge this moment. Um, and it is very obvious how you will be judged if you continue to sit around and stay silent and, you know, duck reporters' questions about Donald Trump. Like, the only thing that Mitt Romney needed to do to be judged favorably by history and the public opinion in this moment is to be an honest, normal person and say, no, in fact, Trump has behaved very poorly and should be impeached. And yes, in fact, Black Lives Matter. You know, these are very clear and obvious statements. There's only one answer you have to give. And yet the rest of the party seems to not have comprehended this fact. So actually, congratulations to Mitt Romney. Good for him. <laughs> uh, let's take a break. And when we come back, we will talk more about changes to policing in America. I've been talking with Christine Emba of The Washington Post and Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele podcast. This is Left, Right and Center. You're hearing from our Left, Right and Center. And we want to hear from you, too. Tweet us at LRCKCRW and download the free KCRW app to listen to Left, Right and Center on demand. You know the Sugar Hill Gang for Rapper's Delight, one of the first ever rap songs. But when you consider the greatest rap albums of all time, it's hard to imagine anyone mentioning their first full length that dropped a year after, in 1980. But sometimes, legacy is not about the spark itself, but about the flame that spark causes. The Sugar Hill Gang, on Lost Notes, 1980, with me, Hanif Abdurraki. Find it wherever you get podcasts. Back again with Left, Right, and Center, I'm Josh Barrow of New York Magazine. On the right is Michael Steele, former chair of the Republican National Committee and host of the Michael Steele Podcast. On the left is Christine Emba, columnist at The Washington Post. And we're joined now by Emily Owens. Emily is a professor at the University of California, Irvine, where she studies and teaches on the economics of crime, policing, law enforcement, and local government. Welcome, Emily. Thanks. It's great to be here. So this week, I think we've seen a shift in the public conversation toward a greater emphasis on what to do about the grievances that have been animating these protests all around the country. How does policing need to change? And that's highlighting a divide between progressive activists with a sweeping vision encapsulated in slogans like defund the police or even abolish the police and more reformist agendas about changing how the police work, what they're allowed to do, changing the way they're supervised. 
I say this is a division with activists on one side because it's not really a division between the political parties, at least not yet. Joe Biden has explicitly rejected the defund the police idea. He's been emphasizing a pre-existing policy proposal to increase federal police funding tied to positive reforms. James Clyburn, the House Majority Whip and the highest-ranking African-American official in Congress, spoke forcefully against the idea of defunding police on Wednesday. And public opinion polls show wide support for reforms like banning chokeholds, but reducing police funding remains unpopular. Uh, So, Christine, let me start with you. What does defund the police mean, and what are people who are using this slogan trying to get? So, first of all, I think we've all heard this axiom that in politics, if you have to explain yourself, mm-hmm. you're losing. That's yes, right. Um, and unfortunately, you know, defund the police uh, is something that needs to be explained. And, you know, that's that's a problem uh, for those on the left and those who support it. But yes, defunding the police doesn't necessarily mean, you know, killing police forces totally, although that could be a long-term outcome. What it really means um, is moving some of the funding that we give police uh, that militarizes them, that uh, asks them to take care of many other issues in the community that they have no business taking care of, frankly, uh, and moving that to community programs that are better equipped to handle those issues. Police should not be the cure for mental health issues or homelessness. Um, We should be funding you know, community organizations that can better reach those populations. So it really means, you know, moving um, funding from police departments back into the community to support education, health, um, mental health, uh, homelessness issues that the community should take care of. Michael, it seems like Republicans are pretty eager to have the debate on these terms around defund. And and you've seen Democrats, I, I think, for the same reasons running away from that. But I think some of the specifics that Christine lays out there can be, and some of them already are, quite popular if you talk about those specifics. Yeah, I I, I agree with uh, with Christine on this point. And in fact, uh, to her point, we at one time did have uh, the very uh, necessary programs uh, and operations in place in communities uh, that dealt with a lot of these uh, social ills that police now seem to have to manage on a day-to-day basis. They were called community centers. They were called rec centers. They were called places where uh, young people and community leaders gathered um, to assess the neighborhood and to deal with the day-to-day goings-on. Uh, and the police were ancillary to that process. You know, they were only involved if there were criminal activity or if there was some other type of violent uh, action uh, taking place. Um, We've changed that role. And going back to Nixon uh, in the 68 campaign uh, on the heels of the riots, uh, the the disruption um, at uh, the Democratic Convention, for example, uh, and uh, other uh, things that were going on, this law and order concept took hold. Uh, It was an appeal to the white segregationists who were not fans of nor interested in civil rights and um, all that went with that uh, struggle. Um, And it was a way to politicize uh, this uh, and operationalize, uh, for example, um, the uh, strategy to to win the White House, to win elective office. We have unfortunately held on to that um, for uh, these 40-plus uh, years, 50-plus um, years. And the reality now, um, it's hard for a lot of Republicans to undo that, um, even though, in my view, they're on the wrong side of history. 
uh, when it comes to what's required of us right now um, to address uh, the concerns, not just in black communities, but communities across the country that are beset by militarized police. So, Emily, I'm wondering how you think about these questions as a social scientist, because it it seems to me like the first question here is basically, what are the police for? And then the second question, once you have an answer to the first one, is how can we best have them do that? And so the the first question, which is in a lot of ways a question of values, how do you think about that? And as you look, I mean, what, what Michael describes there, the idea that a lot of things police are doing, they didn't always do and they probably don't need to do, and we could have fewer interactions between police and the public if we made certain changes. Do you see that borne out in the data, what would that look like? The job of police is to enforce the the criminal laws that states and you know city councils make. Um, and a lot of something that I think that you know needs to be sort of brought up constantly is that you know in part because police are intended as a form of of law enforcement of crime control. Uh, the way that we have historically measured and sort of evaluated whether or not police are doing a good job is through crime. We, we do a really good job in the United States of measuring how much crime there is. And when we were then think, well, are police doing a good job? Should we have more police? Uh, should we have less police? The way we've evaluated that has always been, well, a police did something, what happened to crime? And as an economist, as an applied social scientist, you know, I think a good policy is not necessarily one that has any benefits, and specifically whether the benefits of this policy outweigh the costs. And you know, what we've been seeing, particularly since, uh, you know, since Nixon, since the 1960s, the sort of reduction in community centers, in, you know, social support uh, infrastructure, you know, police have been interacting with people in ways that were not necessarily the sort of original intent of police. You see people, inter- you see police interacting with people in ways that you know, are perceived to be full of racial bias and racial disparities, where the cost of those police interactions are arguably not, you know, really offset by the benefits. When, when you say costs, you don't just mean like fiscal costs, right? You mean the costs that they may impose socially in addition to the fiscal costs? Exactly. Exactly. You know, police officers face the same trade-off that, that we would say just all governments throughout human history have made, where, you know, you need to be strong enough to be able to be in charge, to get people to do what you want, um, but you need to be able to credibly commit to be using, you know, your right to use force, your huge, awesome amount of power in a way that people trust, right, that people believe is legitimate and, and is really looking out for their best interests. Um, And our ability to measure how police policies affect people's trust in the police, um, how police policies affect racial disparities um, and socioeconomic disparities in the United States, that's, that's really not nearly as developed in the way that our measures of crime have been developed. You know, we know a lot about the, we know a lot about how much crime there is. We know a lot about how much crime costs society. Um, and while we know there's a huge amount of evidence on, you know, racial bias and the extent to which um, interactions with police, particularly when you're a young person, you have a negative interaction with police, like that, that's clearly not necessarily good for you. Um, it can reduce the likelihood that you graduate from high school. It can lead to increases in stress. Um, but we don't have the type of social science data where we can really you know, quantify the extent to which that changes when we change policing policies and what, you know, really what as a society do we lose when, you know, we 
prevent a kid from graduating from high school. So I, I broadly buy this this frame uh, about that, you know, one of the things that we can do in this moment is figure out what things the police are doing are not truly necessary, what interactions with them are not necessary, what can be farmed out, and can we shrink the footprint of the police in, in certain ways? I think that is both a good substantive idea and a good political message if, if framed right. One, one concern that I have is that I, I, I there are certain places in which we want less police and less policing, but there are other aspects of what the police do where I think both substantively and a matter of public opinion, we want more of it. And particularly the, the rates at which police solve serious and violent crimes nationally and in certain cities like Chicago is sort of pathetically low. And so it seems to me like what we should want is less of the police doing a lot of the things they're doing right now, but there are certain things that we should want them to do more of and that we may want more personnel and more money put toward. And Back in January, Civis Analytics, which is a left-of-center uh, political data and survey firm, they asked people how they felt about a proposal to raise police budgets and put more police in high-crime areas. And this was a popular idea with respondents of all ethnicities. Uh, white respondents favored it by 65 to 13. Black respondents favored it by 60 to 18. And so I do worry a little bit about this message about less police when I think, you know, I think people have complex views on this and they want more police doing certain things and less of police doing other things. They want more good policing and less bad policing. You know, we want to shrink the scope of police responsibility to, yes, what the police are supposed to be doing, and then shift many of their other responsibilities to better equipped entities. Um, and so if we can get police to be better and more dedicated at, you know, actually solving murders, solving homicides, um, interrupting, you know, actual violent crime that harms people, that would be great. What we are seeing in many cities, uh, as you just mentioned, is that you know police do come in and disrupt the neighborhood for all sorts of other reasons, but aren't very effective in the very things that police are meant to do. And that is actually what increases distrust in the police. You know, they come in, push my kid up against a car and frisk him, but when there's actual violence on my block, they're nowhere to be found. Um, but that's kind of a different question, right, than defunding the police or funding the police more. The police have lots of funding right now. Uh, they should dedicate that funding to doing the things that they're supposed to do. The doing the thing that they're supposed to do is is a, is a critical part, but... Uh, I think there's something that's even more essential um, that we can get lost in the whole defund, eliminate, destroy, take down the police department. That's not going to happen. All right. So I think we just need to get a grip and understand that ain't happening. Um, there's no will in the country to eliminate police departments, even in the example of Camden, New Jersey. Um, they they basically deconstructed their police department and rebuilt it under a different model. They didn't eliminate their police department. There's still police in the city of Camden. But I think what's essential to look at what they did in Camden um, when they fired all the police, including the police chief, and everyone had to reapply, they set what that standard for application would be. In other words, what kind of police officer are you going to be? What kind of police officer are you currently? Uh, and that's, that, to me, is, is, is equally an important part of this process of evaluating the role of the police uh, as anything else. You can evaluate their role and you can lay out on a piece of paper all day long what it is they should do and what they shouldn't do, what areas they go into and what areas they don't go into. But when they do whatever they do, how are they doing it? What is their mindset? How do they see themselves in this job? 
Emily, I want I wanted to get you in. Um, and basically, the, Michael was describing there a sort of lack of accountability among police officers, and I think to an extent acting as an independent political constituency. We see this in a lot of cities where you know you elect a mayor, and the mayor may have ideas about police policy, but the police are, are effectively able to resist the imposition of a lot of those ideas, even though they in theory work for the mayor. So. Are there effective strategies to counteract that? I mean, Michael talks about selecting the right personnel, but I assume a lot of it is about power structures, right? That, you know, people will will take opportunities to misbehave that you give to them. What are what are opportunities to change that power structure uh, so that the police are made more accountable to the, to the elected officials who are supposed to oversee them? So that is something that is like a first order issue. Police officers have a huge amount of discretion when you're actually talking about an officer who's out on the street interacting with people, you know, until about even... 15, 20 years ago, officers would, you know, meet at roll call, they'd talk to their supervisors, their sergeant, and then then they'd go off. And who knows what they did, as long as there was no complaint filed against them, as long as they didn't, you know, deploy their weapons, no one really ever checked up on what they were doing. Um, you know, so Cynthia, Cynthia Lum at George Mason and some colleagues have recently documented just like the huge gap between what you know policing policies and sort of best practices in terms of crime reduction policing policies are and what officers are actually doing on the street. Um, there is something that is true is that a lot of police training programs and ideas about you know police reform and what works um, are either you know they're either, either said that they work based on crime reduction or a training program is evaluated based on you know officer feedback maybe they do some role play um, stuff that's more in a lab as opposed to you know what did this training program do to what officers actually did in the field on a day-to-day basis um, And what I think we're seeing is because we don't really know what police officers do in the field, uh, there's been a lot of sort of making suggestions of things to try without really knowing what's going to work. I think that the the rise of body cameras, while there's actually a lot of mixed evidence as to whether or not body cameras really reduce force, body cameras are a way of recording what police officers do in the field. Um, This is potentially like a whole new world of figuring out what policing policies or public safety strategies might lead to policing that really is is the type of policing we want that makes people feel safe, but also makes people feel safe from police officers at the same time and sort of make those those trade-offs. I'm really encouraged by... um, places like California, which now has the the Racial Identity Profiling Act of 2015 that really records what officers are doing when they stop the public in a way that's consistent across agencies um, and will be consistent over time. So you can take a look at police departments that change strategies or change training, change instructions for officers, and then we will actually be able to see if those reforms did reduce, say, racial disparities and stop rates and search rates or did reduce that frequency with which officers use force. Um, you know, I think that while I don't think social science is in a good place to really say, here's some tried and true strategies to improve the quality of public safety in the United States, there, there are 18,000 police agencies and pretty much all of them are really taking a hard look at how they are providing public safety. Um, I, I don't think any option should be off the table in terms of what localities try to do to inform policing right now. And I'm you know, hopeful that we can very quickly, if we measure what police do as opposed to just what 
how much crime there is, um, we can sort of very quickly start to look at places that try different strategies. Maybe they are going to completely defund the police department. Maybe they're going to increase funding. Maybe they'll, you know, take a look at who they're hiring. Maybe they'll implement some new training programs. Um, and if we start taking seriously this idea of measuring what officers do as much as we measure what people do, um, then we can start to see which types of strategies, be it, you know, what Camden has tried to do, for example, or what San Diego has tried to do, you know, does it look like those different strategies are improving the quality of police citizen interactions or in improving the amount of safety in society? Let's leave it there. Emily Owens of the University of California at Irvine. Emily teaches in the economics department and the Department of Criminology, Law and Society. Emily, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I've been talking with Christine Emba of The Washington Post and Michael Steele, former chair of the RNC. We will be back to talk about the coronavirus, which is still with us. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from all sides. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. Stream all episodes of Left, Right, and Center and our companion show, All the President's Lawyers, at kcrw.com slash podcasts or from the KCRW app. Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com join. Back again with Left, Right, and Center, I'm your host, Josh Barrow. On the right is Michael Steele, former chair of the Republican National Committee and host of the Michael Steele Podcast. On the left is Christine Emba, columnist of the Washington Post. There is still a pandemic ongoing, in case you forgot, and while it's hard to figure out exactly what the trends mean from week to week because of changes in who gets tested and noise in the data, there are concerns about resurgence of coronavirus outbreaks, most acutely in Arizona and also in Texas, Florida, and parts of California. Concern about this has manifested in a return to gyrations in the stock market we haven't seen since the beginning of April, which was another time when people were trying to understand whether or not things were about to get a lot worse with the virus. And officials in places like Houston are starting to talk about whether certain restrictions that have been lifted may need to be reimposed. The president, meanwhile, still seems to be post-coronavirus. He has made plans to move his acceptance speech for the Republican convention in August from Charlotte to Jacksonville, where masks will not be required, and he intends to resume rallies later this month. Uh, so... The thing that jumps out at me here is, you know, you may be done with the coronavirus, but that doesn't mean the coronavirus is done with you. And I think it's not <laughs> oh. just the president. I think to a large extent, yeah. the country has really gotten invested in the idea that, you know, this is on the upswing in one manner or another. Uh, and I'm not sure that any of us are really prepared for no. resurgence. No, we're not. Not at all. I mean, it's, it's I mean, what, it, you know, the events of May 25th forward, the murder of, of George Floyd, changed the way the public reacts uh, and has reacted to um, the virus in the sense that we saw the protests and, and a lot of folks tried to a great degree to, to use um, you know, masks. Uh, social distancing was a joke, but okay, we understand that. But the reality of it still uh, – haunts us uh, that, and you put it very correctly, uh, Josh, coronavirus is not done with us. 
Um, and it is not done with us in areas of the country um, that, uh, you know, lift it too soon uh, before they, you know, actually followed the guidelines of the administration, but, you know, lift it because the administration violated its own guidelines and told them, yeah, go ahead, open up. Um, and so I think we're in for a dicey summer. Um, and, and, and then the fall comes. And so I think perspective uh, is, is required here to understand exactly what we're dealing with. You know, you had Dr. Fauci come out this week and reemphasize again, y'all, this ain't done. Stop it. <laughs> you know, you have to engage in the appropriate social behavior if you do not want to get sick. And you have a lot of young people who are out protesting who are, you know, hanging out with grandma and granddad or someone, family member with an underlying condition um, that, you know, now puts them at risks. And I think we can't afford to lose sight of the fact that we're still in the middle of this thing. And we still, you know, states are just getting to the point, Josh, uh, where they're, you know, getting a feel of this. Uh, the testing is getting getting its foothold. Uh, so that we still have a lot more ahead of us. And I think we just need to be careful um, and cautious. And the thing that worries me about that, Christine, is that some of these indications of, of uh, resurgences, I, I, I hesitate to call it a second wave, as former FDA uh, Commissioner Scott Gottlieb pointed out, we didn't finish with the first wave. So it's right. just an intensification of the first wave. But these are sort of places where activity levels started increasing a lot earlier in May, before these protests happened. So we don't know yet the extent to which these protests may have fueled increased outbreaks in cases uh, where they were especially large, and they were large all over the country. And, th and there are two problems with that. One is it's a, it's a problem inherently in the way that it that it causes virus spread. But then the second is that I think the protests caused a shift in the in the public conception about what rules we had to follow. Either people who you know were involved in a political movement and said, "Oh, this is this is important, and I need to get outside, even if there are these coronavirus concerns, and I'm going to wear a mask, but I'm still going to be close to people, and I'm going to shout." But then also you have people who were not participating in the protests, but who looked at them and said, "Well, if they can do that, then why can't I resume all sorts of other things that I was doing?" In my life. And I think that's going to make it difficult to put a lot of this back in the bottle if it turns out in a few weeks that we really need to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the terminology is interesting. Maybe it's maybe it's not a second wave. Maybe it's just a rising tide of coronavirus. Um, but I mean, you do have to ask, and I think you are sort of subtly asking, you know, whether these protests were worth it in some sense, um, if they will perhaps, you know, end up having caused more cases of coronavirus or increasing spread either by people's presence there or the outside opinion. Um, but free speech, I think, is worth it. Uh, bringing attention to police brutality and racism in this country and the change that it has already caused, I think for many of the protesters, um, they would say that it's worth it. And, you know, I would note that many of these people who are you know, saying, oh, well, like, look at the protests, now coronavirus is over, uh, are not necessarily people um, who were just, you know, staying at home, locked in their rooms, and suddenly they see a march on TV and go outside. Uh, a lot of the people who had been pressing for states and counties to reopen, many of the people who had started going out uh, in Houston and Dallas, say, on Memorial Day, are frankly those people who were already ready to pretend that coronavirus was over, or at least ready to risk the safety of others so that they could go out and get their hair cut or pedicure. The reopening, I think, uh, that we're seeing 
primarily pushed, in fact, not by protesters uh, who will tell you that, you know, they do, in fact, think that protesting might be dangerous, that they are worried about their health, but that they believe this causes, you know, actually more important for the country and the world, uh, are actually, you know, those people who want the economy to reopen, want their uh, everyday conveniences, and frankly, a government that no longer wants to pay unemployment benefits or send out, uh, you know, subsidy checks to people and thus is pushing for the economy. Um, It's not necessarily just about people's feelings. There are also underlying causes and underlying pushes to the reopening that we also need to focus on. I have two responses to that. One is, how how can we know whether the protests were worth it or not before we know the extent to which they cause any resurgence in cases? And now, I, I should note, I'm hopeful that they won't be a driver of a big resurgence in cases. I'm hopeful that people wearing masks and the warmer weather and people being outside where the virus is exposed to ultraviolet light, that all of those things uh, will reduce the extent to which these are a public health problem. I'd, I'd also note the police have been a part of the problem here. If you spray tear gas on people so they cough all over the place, during an infectious disease pandemic, (laughs) that seems unwise. But so it's unknown. But, you know, we've for months, we've been talking about the disproportionate effect that the coronavirus pandemic is having on black and Hispanic people in America. Um, And, you know, you could have tens of thousands of additional deaths depending on the extent to which that you, I mean, we, we, there were 30, there was that study saying that there were 36,000 additional deaths because the lockdowns came down a week too late in various places. And those again are, are deaths disproportionately among black and Hispanic Americans. So it's, it's conceivable depending on the, the epidemiological course, there could be a, a really large effect on mortality uh, because of a premature return to various social activity, including these protests. So I don't, I don't know how you can decide now that they were worth it before, before we know what that track looks like. And the other thing is, you know, I, I think talking about pedicures as why people want things to reopen is a little bit dismissive. I mean, I think there, there's, there certainly have been frivolous arguments in favor of reopening. But while pol- political speech is very important, so is society. And people given up, have given up all sorts of important things over the last several months, including religious worship, the enterprises that are that are their 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 livelihoods, their small businesses that are severely threatened by this, so that doesn't that doesn't mean that everyone should just go back to what they were doing. But I think that there are you know, there are good faith reasons to look out there and ask, you know, did I really have to stop doing all the important things that I stopped doing, and do I need to continue to stop doing them? In an interesting respect, you're both right, and that that's the conundrum for this country uh, and for us. Um, in this new space, um, this balancing of our civil liberties and our rights and our freedoms and our choices against a bigger, broader question of res- of responsibility of one neighbor to another um, and how that impacts everything from my ability to go protest an injustice to my ability to keep running my shop and keeping my people employed. And where the test is going to come is on the other side of all of this. Um, and, and how we respond if there is another surge, uh, and what is our response then? Do we reevaluate the, the initial response that we had to shut down the economy? Um, and if there's some other type of unrest, do we respond that, oh, yeah, you can actually go out and, and do a protest? So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. That's what I'm looking at at this point. And Christine, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I'll just jump in and say that I'm not sure that we can, you know, sort of compare the numbers and calculate whether it's, you know, worth it or not, uh, comparing how many people might die of COVID versus how many people were at the protests. Uh, Comparing life and death in numbers, I think, is um, 
not particularly fair or appropriate. And when we think of the causes and the reasons behind the protests, we also have to know, right, you know, racism can cause death. Racism is one of the things that causes the disproportionate uh, loss of life uh, that has come from COVID that we've seen so far. You know, will a possible sea change in how this country's country views racism, views police brutality, views systemic inequality, um, as polling has shown, might actually happen because of these protests, you know, worth it? Is that important? I mean, we cannot see into the future. We cannot look back at this moment and see whether this was a fulcrum, a turning point, uh, a change in our society's, you know, overall positioning towards the question of race. Um, But if it is, um, if that change does happen, uh, then I think many things will have been worth it. In fact, things that this country has been fighting for uh, for centuries. We've reached that time once again for our famed left, right, and center rants featuring pet peeves from across the political spectrum. Michael Steele, what's your rant? My rant is, what will it take for our legislators at all levels of government to wake their behinds up and do something before it gets to the point where the people forces them to do something? So I'm looking at all these legislators now running around, falling all over themselves, trying trying to come up with uh, legislation to address uh, police behavior and uh, funding police. And the public has been talking about these issues forever. Have they not been listening? Why does it take the uh, an horrific event like the murder of George Floyd to get the response uh, that that they're now showing us? And how long will it last? Uh, is this just to placate us to get through this? Uh, so they can, you know, check the box. I'm on the right side of history and then move on to same old, same old. So I'm hoping that the public keeps their collective feet to the fire. Use the ballot box against these SOBs. They have not served you well. They've allowed the conditions to get to where they are. And every two and four years they come out to you. And I know this firsthand because I've worked with them to, to, to sell you a bill of goods Stay on top of what elected officials are doing. They should stop being reactive, listen in the moment, and be proactive as opposed to what we've seen up to this point. Christine Emba, it's your soapbox. So I was on Twitter uh, and saw that Band-Aids now have stood with Black Lives Matter and are offering Band-Aids in a wider set of flesh tone colors. It's too late for me. I've gone with decorative, colorful Band-Aids and I've never looked back. But it's actually better than what many brands are up to, which is posting their black squares or making uh, cute statements and then being called out by their employees. Brands, we don't need a post. We need you to hire and pay and promote your black and minority employees. Uh, We're seeing hashtags like publishing paid me. We're seeing the fallout at publications like Bon Appetit and Condé Nast. L'Oreal being called out for having uh, disciplined models in the past for actually speaking up for Black lives. Newsrooms exposing themselves like they did last week. And the NFL saying that players can now protest in the entire world saying, really? Brands, do the work in-house and then present what you've done. Otherwise, like a Band-Aid, it's going to fall off and we'll all see what's underneath. 
for my rant, the New York City Department of Health has updated its guidelines about sex during the coronavirus. Now, one of the key guidelines is not to have casual sex. You're supposed to be avoiding all sorts of contact with people not in your household. That includes sex. But then they also have recommendations for if you are going to have sex, for harm reduction. These recommendations are geared at the fact that COVID is a respiratory disease, and they're generally recommendations about not exposing your mouth to other people. So, for example, they suggest that you wear a mask during sex. They also have this suggestion. Make it a little kinky. Be creative with sexual positions and physical barriers like walls that allow sexual contact while preventing face-to-face contact. I am deeply looking forward to a time when we do not need to receive recommendations like this from the government. That's all we have time for today. I want to thank Christine Emba, Michael Steele, and Emily Owens. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Fay. Our technical director is J.C. Swadek. Tottenham Simon composed our theme music. I'm Josh Barrow. Thanks for joining us, and tune in next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. KCRW.